Hello and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation. This week's episode is brought to you as a collaboration from Bristol Water, Anglian Water and Essex and Suffolk Water. We're at Innovate East, a collaborative event put on to tackle some of the most pressing challenges facing the water industry. My name is Chris Thomas and I'm the Head of Business Improvement and Innovation at Bristol Water. In today's episode, we explore digitalisation and sustainability. These are two topics of great importance and influence in today's world. The digital world is driven by the giant technological strides achieved by developments such as the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. It's all about the pursuit of efficiencies. Sustainability issues are driven by climate change and environmental degradation, leading to the need to preserve resources and prioritise environmental governance. We discuss whether these two topics can ever come together and whether emerging digital technologies can help water companies deliver their sustainability goals. I'm joined by Luis Montestruque, Chris Jones and Mark Froggart. Luis is the Vice President of Digital Solutions at Xylem. Luis has a PhD degree in Control System Theory from Electrical Engineering Department at the University of Notre Dame in the USA. He founded MNET in 2004 to focus on the development of digital twins for optimising wastewater networks. And in 2017, MNET joined Xylem's Advanced Infrastructure Analytics Division to accelerate the development and adoption of smart water applications in the utilities around the world. Luis now leads the digital solutions team, which integrates Internet of Things, digital twins and optimization, covering the entire urban water cycle. Mark has had a long and varied career, starting in heavy engineering within the power industry, moving into nuclear and general chemical sectors before joining the water industry. Since joining the water sector some 28 years ago, he set out to drive change within the industry, embracing technology to shape a form of industrialised output in pace with the wider process industry. Mark has been part of the senior leadership team of the At One Alliance as the head of engineering in AMP6 and has now taken the role of head of solutions for AMP7. Change and innovation are part of Mark's DNA, coupled with extensive experience in engineering delivery. He's committed to push Anglian Water into not just an industry-leading position, but one globally recognised for sustainable, intelligent solutions. Chris has been research and development manager at Essex and Suffolk Water for 22 years, having had a career in engineering surveying. Chris looks after a programme of mainly outsourced research, development and new technology adoption. He's active in shaping the UK industry research programme and provides input and advice to academic research groups. Chris is visiting Professor of Practice at Newcastle University School of Engineering and a non-exec director of RTC North, which provides technology transfer and supports business growth across the north of England. I hope you enjoy the discussion and as ever, do join the conversation through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. Luis, Chris, Mark, thanks for joining me today. We're discussing whether digitisation has anything to offer sustainability. And there's a lot of promise out there. And there was a recent report published by PwC last year that identified 80 ways in which artificial intelligence can benefit the environment. But there seems to be nothing in life that there isn't a digital solution for these days. So I'm quite interested to understand within the water industry how cynical or optimistic we should all be. And it would be good just to unpack that a little bit and understand what we're looking at. So I'd really like to understand when we talk about sustainability issues, what do we mean? And particularly for water, Luis, perhaps you could kick us off with some thoughts there. Sure. The the way that I have seen sustainability in the water space is the idea that we can cover a city with a sort of a membrane and understand the dynamics of what is going into this bubble, so to speak, and what is coming out. And the ideal situation of a, a sustainable water practice is one where both are happy. The environment of what is outside of this bubble is happy, and the people that live inside of this bubble, inside of the city, is happy as well. 
And what that means is that we hopefully actually have a positive effect on the environment, a positive effect on energy usage, on water conservation, and so on and so forth. Great. And uh, from the water company side of view, Mark, do you, do you have a view on, on what it looks like as a, well, as a practitioner? Yeah, I think just taking the uh, one aspect of, and there's many aspects of sustainability, it's in, it's in everything that we touch. But I suppose if we took it into our direct area, it's energy. And I think one of the things about our region is it's so flat. So everything we do is effectively pumped, which is energy. And uh, I think the digital space allows us some real opportunity to optimize our energy usage and really get some intelligence behind why we're using that amount of energy and also some real good predictive analytics that you can attach to that. So you can really get the optimum use of your power and that in itself is a sustainable way of approaching your business. And if we go to the other side of the discussion, then we talk about digital. What generally do we mean by that, Chris? Maybe you could share some views on, on what we mean by the word digital. I think digital has been around for a long time. We've been collecting data for years. And I think essentially at the heart, data is at the heart of, of digital. Uh, and I think doing more, better things with the data that we have collected or are collecting or could collect in the future is really where digital is at. And I think you can get carried away with a lot of the buzzwords around digital, but essentially it's it's driving better decisions uh, from that data uh, and understanding what data is worth collecting. Uh, so for us, I think it's about it's about making better decisions based on the on the data and the evidence that we have. And one of the big themes here at Innovate East is is that of digital twins. So how would we describe what that actually is? Mark, maybe, maybe you can share a view. Oh, that's, that, that is the big question. Uh, the term digital twin has been around for quite some time now, and, and it's great that our industry is actually waking up to what that actually means. I suppose the, the, the purest sense is the taking the physical element that is there and then recreating it in a digital sense. So it's a, it's a real-time, if you like, version of, uh, of that physical item. But the key is is the data you attribute to that and how you use it, as, as Chris talked about before. It really is about knowing what data you need to collect. There's no point collecting data for no use. You've got to collect the right data and know why you're collecting that data. And, and if you get your twin working correctly for you, that's when it really starts to pay off. Just having a replication of what happens out in the field in a virtual sense is not going to answer your questions. So what should we be twinning then? <laughs> what should we be twinning? I suppose you, we really do need to look at the system side of things. It is not about one element within that system. It's not about that particular pump station. It's not about that particular pipe. It's about how that pump and that pipe and that reservoir all work together. So it's about the whole system approach and it's understanding how to optimize that. And that's really what the twin should, should look at. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's about what, what's important for people and places. What outcomes are we seeking to, to change or improve? And how do we understand better the systems that we're using to deliver those outcomes at the moment? And that then starts to focus you on which bit you want to create the twin around. I joined the, the, the sprint around digital twins this morning. I think one of the fascinating areas is how actually 
there's a great opportunity to broaden beyond just water industry outcomes and look at whole customer outcomes and think of a city as a whole, a bit, a bit like your sort of your bubble image almost, and, and where there are shared objectives across that and how you can optimize cross sector. I think there could be real, real future potential there, which, which will be really interesting. Yeah. To further agree with Mark on his remark, one of the things that uh, that has been happening on my side of the world at Xylem is we have aggregated a number of different companies that have been practicing building digital twins for several aspects of what we call the urban water cycle, from the water source to the treatment, to the distribution, to the actual consumer back in the collection system, to the treatment, and you know the circle goes back. And what we have come to realize is that if we can connect all these digital twins across entire urban water cycle, what we can actually achieve uh, is something that before was segmented and siloed, is look at optimizing energy consumption, optimizing the water quality of our water sources and receiving waters in such a way that now we start connecting the dots. If we move something on the treatment plant, that's going to have a ripple effect throughout the entire urban water cycle. So any point that we touch in this water cycle will have a ripple effect. But if we have a digital twin that is able to look at this whole thing as a one single cohesive unit, now we have the tool by which we can you know, upload to the cloud and run you know, hundreds of thousands of simulations to look for what is the most optimal operational and capital infrastructure that we actually need to make both the environment happy and our customers happy as well. Luz, I, I, I totally agree that the exciting thing is the opportunity to link all these, at the moment, disparate items that models, et cetera, that people are running and then put them together in and find things that you never knew existed. I was having a walk around before and looking at the technology which is able to track utility items alongside the roadways, et cetera, even identify potholes and such. And if you've got a manhole that's sinking, the, the person who needs to know that might be highways, but equally we might know, want to know that information because that might be telling us something that's happening underground to our services. So the, the connectivity between these models is absolutely essential. So sounds like there's a lot of opportunity there. For perhaps Chris or, or, or Mark, as a water company, where are we starting to see some successful applications of this kind of technology where it's really making a difference to sustainability goals? So we've got a system that we've been operating for a while and I suppose, if we're honest, never really conceived of it as a digital twin, but it, it is ticking all of those boxes. So this is essential our, uh, our network optimization system. So we're gathering data from real time from our pumps and, and service reservoirs. We're optimizing the supply of water through the system to meet certain points of demand every half an hour and reconfiguring the system so it's automatically turning pumps on and off, trying to balance tariffs against the need to pump water at some point. And that is delivering uh, an energy saving. It's delivering better service for customers because uh, it's a more reliable service. And we're finding also that we can also uh, use that system to condition the, the, the network. So we can put different flow rates around the network at different times, which has a quality benefit as well. So I, even though we didn't call it a twin, it's got it's got real time data. It's got a model which represents the the, the insight. It's delivering uh, uh, sort of recommendations for actions to to our control room, or it's autonomously autonomously 
controlling the network and 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 we can roll things forward we can scenario plan and we can do what ifs uh, if we want to change the network or change the sort of the, the more tactical or strategic way that we operate the network as well as that day-to-day optimization so for us that's delivering benefits on, on energy as, as mark mentioned uh, and quality which is obviously important to our customers i think that's a really interesting point you make Chris, that, that, that sometimes we we don't realize we have a digital twin, even though we're operating a digital twin. And whether that's terminology or just the, the, the slow uptake of the industry itself to actually realize what's a digital twin. We have been operating for some time now, digital twins to enable us to do scenario planning, such as we no longer go to site and then start to build something. We've already rehearsed it. We, we've been able to set that into augmented reality, virtual reality. We can actually run that with our program. So we actually go through the entire delivery sequence through our model sequence before we ever get to site. So in other words, we, by using that digital twin, we actually gain our efficiency in, in our delivery. And it's, it really is a powerful tool. We're doing other things such as uh, on Corby, where we actually high energy usage equipment, where we're actually being able to monitor and, uh, and actually look at our assets and see how it actually functions. So we're doing both ends at the moment. And the thing is, we've, we've got to do more of it and join it all up as well. That's, that's now, the key thing. I'm quite interested in that application around you know, major construction, because actually digital tra- twins represent a, a great opportunity for real collaboration, particularly through the supply chain. Absolutely. Uh, we, we've found benefits where we never knew existed. A simple example that uh, came to mind on a works we did recently, it's very easy to engage what you think are your primary supply chain members and then not really go that far out and reach that far because you think, well, I'll just hit with the main key people. And what we actually found by even getting our crane providers in place, actually what we'd all assumed we were about to do during delivery, the expert, i.e. the guy who was really going to do it, came and said, oh, you can do it this way and cut weeks out of the program and thousands out of the cost of the, the actual job. So it's really important that we get this model out or this, this digital twin to the right people and not automatically assume, as we do with data, that we've got the right answer just because it's in front of us. We need to take it a little bit further and amazing the, the results we've had by doing that. I think that's a great point. We, we certainly imagine that digital twins will help us capture knowledge and expertise that sits within individuals, within, as you said, uh, Mark experts in their field, but to embed that knowledge and to make that more widely available so that people doing these jobs again in the future can, can do them better. I think that's a really valuable use of, of digital twins. So with all, with all this promise, Louise, I'm quite interested in, in your view. You know, Xylem's a real leading company in this space and has a, a great view of, of the different applications that are out there. Where should we be looking for in future to really take this the next step forward, particularly with that sustainability agenda in mind? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the next horizon really is to figure out how do we connect the different digital twins on the urban water cycle. There's definitely a lot of hurdles right now in order to just be efficient at producing and maintaining these uh, digital twins particularly with respect to data. I think that uh, those of you who are familiar with digital twins, obtaining the right data and then making sure that this data has the quality to be able to produce the right digital twin, it tends to take sometimes 80% of the time in actually producing these digital twins. But I'm, uh, I am happy to report in the case of 
a few utilities that we have been working with in the United States. One good example, Kansas City, Missouri, has a $4.5 billion consent decree with the federal government to reduce combined sewer overflows. And what they have been able to do with the digital twin of their collection system, which includes a combination of your typical hydraulic models embedded with neural network applications, is able to reduce close to $2 billion out of that capital infrastructure budget by simply knowing how to operate better their facilities. And so what we're seeing is, is a dramatic transformation on how utilities are looking at capital infrastructure and operational efficiencies, and now connecting that, for example, to what is happening at the treatment plant. Right? We see the drainage network as sort of the, the vascular part of a city and the treatment plant as the heart. And so when we connect those two dots, all of a sudden, massive efficiencies in terms of energy and capital infrastructure needs are able to be obtained. And uh, we discover more of that every time that we connect the dots on this uh, urban water cycle. So pretty excited to start seeing those developments. I'm quite fascinated by the potential that this could hold for, for actually influencing our, our regulatory process and moving from a sort of a point in time moment to almost dare I say, a, a real-time approach to, to setting these things. But I won't take us down that path because it will be a bit of a tangent. I wanted to explore the other side of, of, of the argument then. So if, if, I, if I play cynic for a minute, you know, we've shared a lot of optimism, a lot of opportunities out there. But as we know, there's always difficulties with technology and adopting it. So just to test a few of those with you, I'm, I'm interested in the limits of the technology. So digital always seems to be about optimizing things that we already have. It doesn't necessarily, and I'm, I'm looking to see if anyone wants to counter this, reflect a step change in how we might operate. So as an example, Bristol Water recently, we, we deploy something called biobullets, which is a non-chemical means of, of reducing invasive species. Now, we could have gone and optimized the chemical dosing of everything and really minimized our chemical cost and, and the impact that was having on the environment. But actually, we just took a completely different approach and found this non-chemical solution to the issue. And it was such a success. We've now got fishes everywhere and we're thinking about how we manage all the fish stock. But does that always inherently mean that there is a limit on, on, on what digital can do for us in, in, in meeting sustainability goals? Do we just have to keep it within the realms of optimization or is there, is there opportunity for it to, to, to be more powerful than that? I think that it depends would be my answer. And we have seen uh, situations where, for example, new capital infrastructure was proposed as part of us having a digital twin that enables us to explore different capital infrastructure scenarios, for example. So not just about optimization, but that really requires understanding of how the systems operate and building digital twins that are a hybrid of first principle models as well as machine learning models where we see uncertainties. But with the right approach that is only driven by the knowledge that usually is captured by the utility people itself that live with the system day to day, even dramatic changes can be proposed as part of this utilization of digital twins. Can you, can you explain just a little bit what you mean by, by um, those models that are, are based on the sort of fundamental principles and what they do? Yeah, so the uh, digital twin is, as it was mentioned, is something that has been around for some time. And some people understand that as some kind of machine learning tool that help us go from data to behavior of the system. But some other people that, you know, obviously have worked with models before understand them as your typical modeling exercise, which is what has uh, traditionally driven 
more of the capital infrastructure changes on the system that cannot be captured by data that has been collected so far. And so our understanding, our view of a digital twin is really one that combines the best of both worlds. The idea of utilizing the traditional physics-based or process-based models with data-driven models and, and be savvy about, you know, we can incorporate dramatic changes on the system, but we can only do that using this first principle models that really don't have any other data in the system about how they have been operating. But if we combine that again with other parts of the system where we don't really consider making those kind of changes and where there is greater uncertainty on the system and we can actually build a machine learning tool that is based on the data, then great things can happen. Mm. So let me, let me explore another premise to, to, to test for you the, for, from a skeptical point of view. In the previous podcast we ran on technology, really explored the, the or, or a theme that very much came out of it was one of trust and that kind of manifests itself in a whole number of areas and different guises. But the one I'd, I'd, I'd like to explore is around prediction. And so, Chris and Mark, I'd be interested in, in, in your view on this, in that are we ever really going to be brave enough to act on a prediction from a, a computer model, you know, accrue the cost of sending someone to fix something proactively, and then never really know whether it would have come true anyway? What's your view on how we overcome that issue? Because if, if all these wonderful promises that, that we hear are there, they're only good if we act on them. I think, well, I, we, we already are acting on them, and I think that's fundamental, really. You, you, you have to have trust in these systems, and you put the necessary groundwork in. You have the governance, you have the data quality assurance, and you have the, the, the human in the loop, if you like, to sort of provide the sanity check that you're not necessarily going to let these systems loose to control systems autonomously yet well, i think that's probably coming more so so yeah we're already acting on on, on forecast you know even though the network optimization tool that i mentioned before that's giving us recommendations of where it, it feels we can best supply water from to, to minimize energy use and we're, we're acting on that so i think that's we're past the point of worrying about that I, I, I totally agree. I think this lack of trust, the, there is elements of lack of trust in the whole digital space anyway, but this this uh, reliance now on, on predictive modeling, it, it happens in, in our everyday lives. There's not an insurance company in the world who doesn't actually do predictive modeling. It, uh, and they make their business model around that in the same way, that, as Chris said, we're already doing this. I should be able to look, and I'm sure Lewis from Xylem will actually say the same thing about your pumps. You know how your pump will perform. You know when it starts to drift away from where it will perform and you know the steps that you would need to actually bring that back to where it needs to be. The key is a lot of the time because we only take certain parts of data, we miss those trigger points, we miss those those signals, those red flags. And really it's not about whether we trust them or not, it's the fact that how we actually seeing them and do we gather them enough. And maybe that's where people haven't necessarily got the or it's got not got the uptake that it needs is because we people are not seeing that the art of the possible they're only still reacting to the traditional and and i really genuinely feel that the systems are now in place and and there is still always that human factor i think there always will be that human factor in there to make those ultimate big call decisions but most of the day-to-day -day stuff most of the scheduling as such that can be done automatically and to pick up on your your point around are, are we gathering the right information to inform a decision i'll, I'll mm. test another hypothesis which is is it too expensive to get the data we need? So a lot of digital twin 
learning is, is, is built on the emergence of, of IoT technology, so the Internet of Things, putting instrumentation out there in the fields, and that comes with various complexities around, you know, powering it, maintaining it, and, uh, you know, the, the cost of instrumentation is dropping all the time, but the cost of water is not very high either, so it's sometimes difficult to balance that business case. Well, probably again for Chris and Mark, what's your view on, is it too expensive to, to, um, to get this data or not? I, I genuinely, uh, like I say, the cost of data and the cost of gathering data is dropping all the time, but with that comes the temptation to stick a sensor on everything. And then you fall into the trap of gathering data just because you can gather data. So I think when we're looking at our digital twins these days, we're trying to ask ourselves and go really back to basics of what do we actually want to know? And once we, you know, and why do we need to know it? And what's the value proposition of having that data? And that's the really important thing. And I think then there's this, this argument and, and believe it or not, I still have people arguing whether we should be even designing within a digital space. That still exists. And, and I think one of the biggest challenges, and I feel I'm probably going left field on this one, but is about the cultural aspect, which we've not talked about yet, which I think is a whole piece itself about um, why we're not doing this. But I, I genuinely believe that if we have the right focus on what it is that we want to gather and why we want to gather it, I think the cost of actually having that information is valid and will actually not be as expensive as we think. I think that's right. It's all about the purpose. I think there is a risk when we're talking about cost of data is that we try and take shortcuts. So when you're collecting data, you need to collect reference data and metadata, data that, that goes alongside the actual data points and explains the provenance of that data and the, 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 sort of the confidence in the quality of that data and what instrument it was and what environmental conditions were, were in play at the time. If you don't have that contextual data, then the data that you are collecting is very much devalued and you, you, you can't really go back and, and use it for, for multiple different purposes. There's a risk if we're, if we're too focused on reducing cost of data that we miss collecting that additional data that, that is absolutely essential in making this work. I think we've fallen into the trap these days. If you, you, you hear it said so many times, oh, data is storage of data now, it's so cheap. That's actually making the case worse because it gives us an excuse to save more data, not the right data. So uh, let me open it up then. I've tested a few hi hypotheses. Louise, perhaps you could comment on this one, which is as a supplier, what are the biggest barriers that, that you see in the water industry to deploying digital and, and you know making a difference to some of the sustainability goals with it? Yeah, I think uh, we uh, kind of talked about, we just touched on two actual aspects of that. And one of them is how do we make sure that we have a disciplined way of going about implementing these kind of projects. And um, the promise of the digital solutions group that I belong to is uh, a clear return, dramatic return on investment. And that means that the approach of building these digital twins and these optimization tools will be able to generate at least a 3x return on investment over what has been done as a baseline or with other traditional technologies. So when we are looking about when do we actually deploy sensors, how many sensors need to be deployed, how are we building this digital twin and the subsequent optimization processes to drive uh, deficiencies, we need to understand what is the actual return on investment. And then only then we can actually launch into a process that then will render some real results. The second part is a cultural part. 
Uh, and I'll be very curious to know from you guys, what is your experience with change management, going from a utility that has not relied on these kind of technologies to actually using digitalization and these kind of uh, digital twin technologies to drive your operations. I think that is a, a key part that needs to be addressed at the front end. Who's going to drive this? Who's going to maintain the sensors? Who's going to maintain the digital twin? And once the optimization processes render results, who's going to make sure that we actually do follow through? Yeah, I think, I think pairing things with that end-to-end that -end process is critical because it's, it's never really the, the technology alone that is the final solution. A bit like my point on trust and whether we're brave enough to make the decisions to send someone to proactively maintain something or change something has got to come down to persuading someone to be willing to make that call and then actually knowing what they do. Who, who do they call and where are they sending them and what are they asking them to do and did, did they get all of that from the, the software or not and, and being really upfront in the implementation process with, with that part of the solution. I, I, I completely agree, is utterly critical. Being a technologist, of course, I would think uh, the technology part of this is actually the easiest part. Building the business case first and then following that with the proper change management strategies uh, to actually get the utility to embrace this idea and maintain it, I think is key. So I'll draw our discussions to a close. And being a, a podcast on innovation, I've been collecting people's thoughts on this question. So I'll be interested in your views. I'd like to know what of today's innovations do you think will let us down? So what's going to be a big flop? Who's, who's feeling brave enough to, to give us a first pitch at this? I'll go first because I'll, I'll go heretical on this. And I think one that was absolutely transformational, it transformed the world, is still transforming the world and the world relies on it, but it's coming back to bite us, is plastics. So I think we don't want another plastics. When we need to, I, I guess, understand the future, long-term future implications of the things we're innovating and the, the new products and, and materials that we're introducing. So I think plastics is a, is a sobering warning for us all around how, how you can have something that at first appears magical and transformational, but actually it's, it's going to bring a lot of problems and a lot of downside from now on into the future. Oh, he's going he's gonna to meet that bar. That's a great, Ooh. great suggestion, I think. <laughs> Follow that one. Yeah, it's, I suppose that example on plastics is a great one by producing something that I'm sure the guys who uh, did the first delve into the nuclear world thought that would be a brave new world also. And uh, yes, look at the legacy that some of that's left behind. However, you've got to counter that by saying that that cannot stop you from advancing. And you can't run scared of, of potentially failing. So my view in, in the, I suppose, the technology side of things is I don't think that any of the technological advances have ever really been flops. And I'm old enough to remember VHS and Betamax and, and CDs and then 4K, Blu-ray, all these things that have, have actually have now gone by the wayside. But actually every one of them only advanced the next portion of history, if you like. So even if something does eventually go by the wayside technology-wise, you'll probably found it was a catalyst for something else to happen. So in the purest sense, I would say that nothing in the technological side would actually ever be a flop. I'll be controversial there and say it merely prompts the next thing. But in the physical world, absolutely, things like the, the plastics and, and even the nuclear side of things, you really do have to think 
very, very carefully. So if I was to push you and not let you get away with that answer and say, what's the next Betamax? <laughs> what's the <laughs> what next? Would you plump what's up? the next Betamax? I suppose if I was going to say that the, the biggest problem that we seem to have is making things talk to each other. So it's about the language. And uh, what we don't want to do is create an Esperanto. We just want to actually be able to find how we can make those languages all line up. And I think that's the biggest chance in our, our technology side of things to avoid it and all of it being a flop in the sense that we've just got to make sure that we stop this protectionism around some of the data that we produce because we think it gives us an angle, an edge, etc. And actually, I'd be open and share it. And I think the failure would be not doing that. Great. Luis? You know, I thought I was going to have something original to say until Mark started talking. And I, I completely agree with you. I was, uh, I was just going to remark uh, on exactly the same topic, that is, on the technology side of things, as it relates to water technologies, I think that all the professionals that I have met have the right point of view. We need to keep the environment happy. We need to keep our customers happy. And so uh, as technology evolves, I think that we are getting smarter about how to implement these technologies to achieve to achieve those objectives and every step that we take gets us closer to that end and so again to uh, to reinforce what uh, what mark said i think that the only thing that is dangerous is is being fearful and allowing the fear of trying something new to stop us from actually innovating and achieving our goals that is not to say uh, reckless. We don't want to be reckless, but we want to try new things. We want to make sure that utilities are open both culturally as well as technologically to these approaches. And really, the next uh, horizon that I personally would love to see is a world where utilities become active participants in the development, in the implementation, in partnership with technology companies such as mine to actually create a new future. And that's that's really my point of view. I'm very tempted to ask you what today's failure Xylem is going to stand on to, to see that future come <laughs> forward. But I think that's a nice rousing call to end on, a nice vision you've painted for us. So, so we'll pause there. Guys, thank you very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on our Innovation Quest. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards, we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. 